to another episode of the TODR podcast. I'm Zach Michaelis, TODR's Editor-in-Chief, and today I'm joined, well, almost as always, by our two writers, uh, Ben Blissett and Rory Taylor. How are we doing today? Good. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. good week. Yeah, good week. Yeah. Any reason? Just good vibes. Good, you know? good to hear. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to be positive because it's going to be another episode where actually the, the subject is probably quite, quite bleak overall. Okay. Well, good effort. Yeah. Um, so... As Rory sort of alluded to there, obviously we're going to be talking about Israel in the main section of this video. We're going to specifically be talking about the European Union, or rather let's just say Europe's response to the Gaza war. Um, but before we get into that, we have to do our underreported stories. So again, we're going to start with Rory. Uh, what is your underreported story for the week? I've kind of got a two-parter for this one. Um, so the first part is King Charles has been on a trip to Kenya. I saw that. And he yeah. did a speech where he expressed regret about uh, the actions of the British during Kenya's path to independence, um, but didn't apologise. And the second part is the German president, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, has been in Tanzania, which was formerly a German colony. Uh, a similar kind of visit to Charles, but in his case, he did actually make an official apology to um, the Tanzanian people for Germany's role uh, back in, I think it was, there was an uprising in the early 1900s that was suppressed by the Germans. Um, so he made a formal apology there. So I think it's interesting. I mean, these are things that come up every now and then, especially for the British, where there was this huge empire and lots of people that if, if you know, King Charles wanted to apologise to, there'd be a long list of people yeah. to apologise to. Um, it's interesting that these two visits happened at the same time, but kind of went different ways, one with this official apology and one just kind of keeping one step back from an apology, really. It was interesting, wasn't it? Because the statement that Charles... Oh, this, is a, this is such a non-TLDR yeah. topic. But the, <laughs> the statement that Charles put out, or rather articulated, mm. was uh, it was so impassioned in its regret. It was it was an apology without the word yeah. sorry. Well, this is what I find really interesting, because the, the, the German president's speech, um, he never said, I apologise, or I am sorry, or we are. Uh, the, the phrase he said is, I want to... As, Sorry, as Germany's federal president, I want to ask forgiveness for what Germans did to your forefathers. And I, I guess asking for forgiveness is kind of an apology, but yeah. it also doesn't feel like why, an actual why apology. Why do you think they stopped short of an apology? I think effectively it's because they worry that if they do actually apologise, then there'll be like some kind of legal right. way that the people they're apologising to can say, well, you owe us this amount of money for, for what like you did. It's like when you get a car crash and you're not supposed to apologise yeah. for legal reasons. Yeah, pretty much. I think that's yeah. part of it. I always think there's a political... I mean, I, I'm sure that is actually the main thing, but I do think there's this... Uh, the, the king has a playing a delicate political mm. game um, because, you know, monarchs are fundamentally political and, and monarchs do have eyes on their approval ratings. And <clears throat> he's got a simultaneously... Like, he is quite... Left-wing is too strong, but, like, he's quite a... Uh, let's just say modernising monarch... No, he's got to focus on like environmental mm. things um, and he's doing this sort of like tour of all the former colonies and um, coming near an apology for them. Yeah. I think he's quite modern in his instincts, the political instincts. Um, but at the same time, I think he has to try and make sure he doesn't upset, you know, the, the contingent of the British yeah. public that would see an apology as sort of like uh, giving in to the woke lefties, you know, like the, the Daily Mail. Readers. Yeah, I suppose from, from his perspective, he probably genuinely believes that he he personally doesn't have something to apologize mm. for like he he yeah. can express his own personal sorrow at what happened but if he doesn't think because he wasn't personally involved if he doesn't think that then uh he, does he think he has the right to apologize if that well, makes he probably sense thinks like, he, I, I think he probably does easily, as far as he can apologize on behalf of the yes, family exactly. but yeah. the yeah this is the most we've as tldr yeah. ever squeezed out of a royal topic yeah. <laughs> that's quite well it's true um okay ben 
Yeah, um, well, I'm looking at another UK story this week, which is the code inquiry. Mm. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't sound so bored. It's just, it's very you story. It, it is, it is. Um, but I think it's important. They're taking evidence this week um, from a number of different key figures at the time, and it's painting a, a quite a clear picture now of the chaos that the government found itself in when when um, when they first saw COVID spreading through, for example, the Italian healthcare system before before we locked down. It also shows. Um, I mean, we, we sort of knew this before as a character trait from Johnson. Um, he, he sometimes takes a little while to come to a decision, but it was quite shocking to see, you know, a number of different figures pointing out that how frustrating it was mm. that they sort of felt that they reached a conclusion that we either should lock down or shouldn't lock down, and then the next day, you know, you turned and just constantly did yeah. that. Um, and it's really painting a picture because this, this isn't, you know, it's not Labour people coming out and saying this isn't a partisan attack. These are people who, who dedicated their time uh, working with Boris Johnson, working for the government, um, for the the lockdown strategy, and it's painting just a very clear picture now of, of what what it was like at the time. And we got we got some incredible quotes. We did. We? We I really think you did. are allowed to say them on the podcast. Yeah. So uh, most of them came from Dominic Cummings, um, and he's been accused of uh, using violent and misogynistic language, specifically directed at Helen McNamara, um, who was the deputy uh, uh, cabinet secretary. Um, so he called her a, uh, well, I presume we're going to bleep this, but he called her a c- uh, And he also, um, in this is where he got accused of the misogyny. He, he referred to um, her, I think, stilettos or something. And it's just quite, yeah. just some quite distasteful um, language and some quite distasteful sort of imagery that he was trying to paint here. That, is, he, that obviously is pretty unpalatable, but there also were some, some, some quite fun quotes about Tory ministers, no? Yes, yeah, and he, the, the interesting thing was he was then asked about this in, in committee and he was asked about the language um, and he it was, was he sort say? of an uncomfortable, well, <laughs> quite an uncomfortable thing when he was reading all these out and then they came, came back to him and he said, well... But what know, were they reading out? I, I, I don't know the exact quotes. Do you, presumably you do. No, I think there was something like fuck pig. That oh, was, fuck uh, pig, yeah, yeah that yeah, was one yeah. of them. Yes, he, he referred to them as fuck pigs uh, and c- called a variety of people um, and when he was at, he had, you know, what was intended to be an embarrassing moment, I presume, at committee for him, where they read these quotes out and said, uh, you know, do you regret using these? And said, I kind of regret the language, but ultimately a lot of people thought I was affecting a, a wider view at the time. And I think he tried to explain it as as unpalatable as that, that phrasing was. What's more unpalatable was the, the, the actions of these people that I was yeah. criticising, effectively. Um, um, so, but anyway, the, the, the point is, as interesting as all that is, and, and you know, as, as, as much as that, that has done its rounds on Twitter, you know, there is a, a serious element to this as well, which is you know, the number of people that obviously lost their lives in, in COVID and the, the, the chaos, the abject chaos that has now been made clear of the government at the time, um, even from people who, who worked within it. You know, Lee Kane, Dominic Cummings, Helen McNamara, all of the key figures at the time are now coming out and saying how, you know, near impossible the working mm. conditions were. Um, no, you're right to remind us that even though it was a long time ago and the headlines have been dominated by these entertaining Dominic Cummings quotes, you know, it is appalling quite how chaotic government was at that time and all of the sort of worst car- cliches that we heard mm. about it and sort of caricatures were actually true. I think, I think the levity of it is useful in the sense that it keeps it in the news cycle and it is a way of hooking people back into the story. But ultimately, the, the end goal of that has to be 
you know, remembering that that this 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 was you know one of the most serious crises that this country has faced. You know, two hundred twenty-five thousand people in this country lost their lives, um, and it, it's to do with the government response to that, um, and you know their, their failure at, at times to to come to a clear decision and uh, uh, m you know uh, uh, make a clear decision. So you know, I, I think that's that's. I, I think it's been well reported. I think the bit that's underreported is the more serious element of it. So I think that was the point I was trying to raise. It is also <clears throat> just in a way more bad news for Sunat because yes. it's yet another week of headlines filled with stories about Tory incompetence. And even though Sunak himself sounds like one of the more sensible members of the cabinet, the sort of vibe is that the Tories are useless. Remember, the Tories are still useless. Um, no? Yeah, I do want to return to this later. There's elements of this I, I don't entirely agree with in terms of how oh. it affects Sunak. Interesting. Anyway, so my underreported story is, uh, I think it wouldn't normally be underreported, but it was sort of covered over by Israel stuff, uh, is a visit by Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi to Washington uh, at the end of October. Um, and that was accompanied by some really quite optimistic rhetoric on um, his part. He was talking about the importance of cooperation, reopening a strategic dialogue, all that sort of thing. And this might not feel that important. I mean, it seems sort of almost like trivially true that the two greatest powers should have dialogue with mm -hmm. one another. Like we ha had that sort of bare minimum during the Soviet Union. But it is worth sort of psychologically reminding yourself quite how dire things were at like the end of 2022, you know, just after Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Mm. And it's, there's a lot of reporting has come out since, and obviously because it's been delayed, it hasn't really hit the headlines. But there's a guy called Edward Luce in the Financial Times and Adam Tooze, who writes this, works at Columbia University. And they were talking about how they were hearing serious credible reports from American generals at that time, that 2025 was like, that's when we're gonna be at war with China. And, you know, that's a terrifying idea. That, mm. that was sort of like the sort of, that was the base case in parts of Washington. Um, and it is really good to see that bit by bit there has been a sort of rapprochement. I think it's important not to overstate this. I think it's important to make sure that, you know, this isn't like they're becoming best mates, yeah. but at a bare minimum, opening a strategic dialogue yeah. and <clears throat> sort of like restarting cooperation and really obvious policy areas. I mean, like there was some talk about cooperating on Israel and Gaza. There's also been some talk about cooperating on climate. Um, that's just good for the world. Mm. And we're, we're probably not going to make it through the century without those two cooperating in at least to a minimal degree. Yeah. Isn't uh, um, Xi Jinping is possibly going to San Francisco for a Pacific Leaders Summit or something, I think? And they I might meet is. with Biden they're, then? Which will they're be still being negotiated. So yeah. the, the Biden-Xi meeting hasn't quite been finalized. Mm. I think Wang Yi and Anthony Blinken are supposed to be sort of like talking out the conditions for it to happen. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, again, it's, it sounds like, and it is the bare minimum in a sense, but it's nonetheless a really quite significant improvement on the state of play at the end of 2022. Okay, so with all that said, yeah. let's get into the, the second part of this video. And we're going to be talking about Israel because, <clears throat> well, I mean, like, what else would you talk about? Um, but specifically, and I do think this is an interesting, actually, in some sense, underreported element of the conflict, at least for Europeans. Um, Europe's, let's just admit, let's just say confused response mm. um, to the Israel crisis. So before I ask you a question, I think I just want to like set the stage. And you, you could immediately see the divisions within Europe within the first few days of the conflict, yeah. because you had the European Commission a couple of days after the October 7th attacks saying that they were going to cut all aid to Palestine. You had von der Leyen going to Israel and you talking to Netanyahu and saying, you know, you have the absolute right to self-defense and not really 
mentioning human rights or like international law. And then, ah, oh, let's just say like a couple of days after that, you had a whole load of EU countries, including perhaps most notably Spain, Ireland, Luxembourg, pushing back against the decision to cut Palestinian mm. aid. And then a bit later, you had literally hundreds of European Union staffers penning a letter um, essentially complaining about the way von der Leyen has handled this. And it, that's both that's for two reasons. I mean, one, it's that they don't agree with her sort of like uh, quite absolutist support for Israel. But it's also because it's not clear what von der Leyen's remit is in this respect. Yeah, yeah. Like, is she acting outside of her, of her the scope of her powers? Um, and so we haven't really got past this. These divisions still maintain. Um, but what do you think this like the state of play is at the moment? I think... Now we're, I don't know, a few weeks out from October the 7th now. Nearly a and month, now, yeah. yeah um, and that now now we've had weeks of Israel's response. And we're getting to the point now where uh, the immediate response was condemnation of the attack. But it is all the focus now is on how is Israel responding and how can we or how can Europe kind of alleviate the suffering that's going on at the moment and kind of find some kind of peaceful resolution. Um, and I think it's... I mean, you mentioned von der Leyen's remit there. I think that is a really interesting thing because she, you know, the European Commission in theory is the kind of, is, well, not in theory, it is the executive arm of the European Union. But you have to remember it's 20, uh, 27 member states that struggle to agree on, on most things. And when, you, when we think about Russia and Ukraine, um, they were pretty remarkably united on that front. But when it comes to Israel and Palestine, you've got some countries that are really strongly in support of Israel. And then you've got others like Ireland, which have a lot more historic kind of uh, support for Palestine. And as time goes on, and as the focus moves on to Israel's response, I think those divisions are becoming even more clearer and clearer. Um, I don't really know where it goes from here, but um, I think a lot of it, as much as the European Union wants to be uh, kind of in independent and its own decision, uh, have its own decisions made by itself, it kind of comes down to what Joe Biden wants to do. I think I think it's a huge moment if, maybe if, maybe when Joe Biden kind of moves towards calling for a ceasefire of some kind. I think if that ever happens, then the EU will and the UK. Um, but I think a lot of it depends on what happens in Washington, basically. I think you're right. I think that's, that's entirely correct in that, because I think in some parts there's a symptom of Europe's own internal confusion, you know, without a coherent response, mm. there's no independence and yeah. they just end up sort of accidentally passively falling behind the US. But I think there is uh, at least a possible universe where Europe realizes that, you know, sometimes European and American strategic interests coincide, mm. you know, like Ukraine is a good example of that. They really did neatly map onto one another. You know, both the Europeans and the Americans wanted to defeat Russia. Um, but Israel is this really interesting case, and actually almost all conflict in the Middle East follows this pattern, where European and American interests really sharply divide. Yeah. Um, and I think what makes this asymmetry even starker is the fact that Europe has no power in the Middle East, mm -hmm. and America does. And there's this, it's this weird fact where America gets to decide what happens in the Middle yeah. East, but is entirely insulated from the consequences. <laughs> yeah. So just talking about some, like to flesh that out a little bit, I mean... A really obvious one at the moment is migration. Yeah, mm -hmm. One of the reasons that a lot of Europeans are anxious about what's happening in the Middle East is that they know that if we get further destabilization, that could mean another wave of immigration. And leaving aside the sort of like moral question about immigration, you know, whether it's good or bad, European politicians know that European publics are not keen on that. And so they're worried about that. And, that, you know, the Americans are less fussed. But the other one is energy. 
And this is a this is a marked difference from 1973. But the Europeans really, really need the Middle East for energy. Mm. You know, we need more oil. We need we need Saudi Arabia for oil. Mm. We need world countries for oil. But also gas. You know, Qatar is the world's biggest gas producer. We're trying to move towards gas as part of the energy transition. Both Italy and France, I don't know if you saw, signed 27-year contracts with Qatar to supply them with gas. And we can't, you know, this is this is obviously like it's not it's it's not a distant hypothetical, but it's not gonna happen anytime soon necessarily. But if, as happened in 1973, the Arab states decide to impose an energy embargo on the West, yeah, because they're supporting Israel, mm. then we, we, Europe just can't afford that. But again, America is insulated from that because America has its own domestic oil production. And again, that's very different from the 70s when actually America did rely on the Saudis for oil. But America now has enough of its own oil and gas via shale and fracking that it we won't really be affected. And again, you did see that in Ukraine and Russia in that there was this massive asymmetry in how the two countries were affected when there was a sort of war-related disruption to energy supplies. And so I think you're right that Europe will probably just end up following suit with America. But I do think there's a there's a world in which Macron wins his argument about European strategic autonomy and goes mm. like, guys, this is just not in our interest. It really is in our interest. We are losing favor with the global South. We're at risk of another migration crisis, which politically we can't afford. Again, leaving aside the ethics of it. And we're at risk of another energy crisis in a time when our economies are already stagnating, you know? And I think there is a universe where he convinces enough of Europe to be like, actually, you know what? We do have to yeah. get off the fence well, I, here. I think he is right on that. And I think a lot of people probably would agree with him that that should be the case for Europe, but it just isn't the case now. And, and you, I mean, on the subject of Macron, you see kind of the, the limits of France's ability to kind of dictate policy when he was there saying, let's get an international force in Gaza to defeat Hamas like we did with ISIS. Obviously not going to happen. It's, but I think that is such an interesting... Yeah. So that is such an interesting point because when that happened, you're right, it was met with ridicule. Yeah. You know, everyone would be like, oh, big think, picture think of Macron, yeah. you're coming with a nice silly idea for his foreign policy. <laughs> Um, and, you know, th th there's an element of truth to that. But I think there's worth saying two things. The first is that there have been reports, and I think the New York Times made the Washington Post in the last, like, week or so, that the Americans themselves mm. are talking to the Israelis and saying, you know, what is the end game for Gaza? Maybe yeah. it's an international coalition that goes in. And that's different from Macron's idea. Macron was saying, instead of the Israeli Defense Forces, we go yeah. in as an international coalition. But, and they're saying afterwards, but is, that not a like a miles is that like a peacekeeping mission to kind of govern Gaza I think afterwards, the, or is it to go in and fight? No, it's to govern Gaza, yeah. govern Gaza afterwards. Um, but I, Macron's idea presumably wasn't to go in and fight either. I mean, it might have been to go in and sort when of like he... suppress Hamas a yeah. little bit, but it's not going to be like an idf style invasion of Gaza really City. Fleshed out but neither of the ideas fair. are fleshed yeah. out. The point I'm trying to make is that Macron's idea was met with ridicule. And yeah. then it was like, oh, the French <laughs> yeah. thinking that they're still big then... players in the world. <laughs> and then the Americans say it, and everyone's like, that's a serious idea. Very that's clever. interesting. Very I mean, there is, yeah. there's a point there in that the Americans could do it and the French can't. Mm. But the I, I think that's really interesting. And the other thing is that it's very easy to ridicule that idea. But what are the alternatives? We are, every, whenever you follow this chain of reasoning through, you know, what that basically asks what happens next yeah, in Israel, end you end up with just terrible outcomes all yeah. across the board. And it might be that this, as ridiculous an idea as it sounds, is the least bad option. And I think he made a political mistake in announcing it when he did and in such a sort when of like laissez-faire way. I think it was when he went to Israel. Yeah, well, like so it must have been like the 12th, 13th yeah. October, something like that, maybe Pretty soon after. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, because that was the, it was ripe for ridicule. It was too soon, mm. essentially. But it's not necessarily a terrible idea. And, and so I think it's it is interesting watching like how this affects the European American relationship. Mm. Um, and I think if Macron played his cards right, this would be a real 
point in his favor. You know, this is a, this is a really good way of making the case for strategic autonomy. Yeah. Um, and I think the other reason, by the way, that this is makes the case for strategic autonomy is that it might just be that America can't afford three wars, you know, and if Republicans, you can you already see this in the House of Representatives and that they are trying to get a bill exclusively for Israel war mm. funding and not Ukraine war funding. It might just be that the Republicans decide, I mean, Joe Biden is obviously committed to Ukraine, but that they can't do Israel, Taiwan and Ukraine. And we're just going to do Israel and Taiwan. Yeah. And that's, again, that's something that, that the Europeans have been worrying about. But this is really forcing America's hand here. It's making America mm. m- make a decision. And Janet Yellen, the, is she the Treasury, Treasury Secretary? Yeah. yeah. Am I right about that? Yeah. She said this amazing thing when she was asked, you know, can we afford oh, yeah. two wars? Of course we can. Of course yeah. we can afford two wars. Yeah. By, well, start, I think some interviewer asked Biden a similar thing and he said, you know, we're the richest country in the yeah, goddamn the world. Of course we can. <laughs> but it's pretty bleak when you think about wow. when they're asked, can it's, you afford a wow? it's other an, things? It's you know, an astonishing like statement. Yeah. Poverty alleviation. That <laughs> should like, be my own reported story. Yeah. Sorry. It's an amazing statement. Yeah. And there's actually been internal memos that have been leaked to, I think, the New York <laughs> Times saying from the White House, telling journalists... And uh, well, it's actually staffers, good for it's good for the yeah. economy. You have to sell it as being good for the economy. We're going to get American jobs in arms manufacturing. But historically, yeah. post-war, post-Second World War, America getting involved in foreign conflicts, especially ones that don't have a quick and easy resolution, do end up. You know, like Vietnam's a great example of that, where it seems on the surface that it's something they should be able to solve pretty quickly, and they have the military might to solve. But it ends up being lengthy, politically difficult, and incredibly expensive. I mean, Iraq, Afghanistan. Iraq and Afghanistan yeah. and mm. other great examples as well. But that, that it, seems to, it seems to portray an, an, a mild ignorance of post-World War II history. It's also quite uh, morally. <laughs> it's just very, very... I, I don't know what the right word is. It's depressing to think it that, depressing. like... Yes, lots of people are dying, but, like, jobs and Lockheed Martin stock prices going up or whatever yeah. like it's not a good way of looking no. at the world really is it no it's, it's, it's slightly astonishing way of looking at the world and it's slightly astonishing that america that the white house can even get away with it mm. in a way that you can even say with a straight face we can afford two wars probably three yeah. what's what are you talking about what does that even mean as like a statement yeah um and i, I just I, I as i say i return to the you know, as you were discussing earlier, there's no there's no clear solution to the the Israel, or, or there's no clear end goal for the Israel Gaza um, crisis. And as I say, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, it was the same there, and they dragged on, cost tons, and ended up being. I mean, Iraq slightly different, but at least Vietnam and Afghanistan. You know, no clear end. You know, end game with that. No, I, I mean, I, th- I think you're right. I think that's this points to another thing that is true in both America and Europe, though, which I don't think has necessarily been true in the past, is that this is clearly going to be a war where the political appetite, or at least in like amongst the public, mm. really wanes quite fast. I mean, polling already suggests that I think about two thirds of Americans want a ceasefire. Um, and this problem is especially acute for the Democrats, because if you go into a presidential election with, you know, the most left-leaning part of the Democratic base thinking, I can't believe what Biden's done yeah. in Israel, supporting sort of genocide, Israel. I'm not endorsing that viewpoint, I'm just articulating <clears throat> it. Um, and then you have some, like a third candidate, like Cornell West, you yeah. know, taking 5% of the vote. That's the end yeah. for Biden. That is another four years of Trump. And that's also true. You see that in a microcosm in the UK, where... Starmer is realising mm. that it's going to be very, very difficult to, for him to keep Muslim voters on side yeah. who'd normally vote Labour while simultaneously trying to distance himself from Jeremy Corbyn and taking a harsh line on, well, again, basically a harsh pro-Israel line. Yeah. Um, 
And again, it'll be true in it'll be true in like all European countries in that European yeah. electorates have no appetite for a war in Gaza and would prefer a ceasefire. And there'll be increasing political pressure as time goes on for all the governments, all the Western governments to sort of well, to row back a little bit and yeah. basically try and get Israel to sue for peace. I mean, a ceasefire, <clears throat> like with like we said, for basically every other outcome, it's hard to see like how it goes from there. I mean, a ceasefire would be one thing, but that's not that's not the end result. A ceasefire is just one step in yeah. some yeah. future process that we don't know don't know what direction it will go in. Yeah, and, it's, and Hamas that. is also worth saying, and this, and this doesn't really have any import apart from just saying that there is no obvious solution. Yeah. It's that Hamas have already said, or Hamas spokespeople have already said that they won't respect the ceasefire. Mm. So, you know... It, and add to that Hezbollah and the Houthis and everyone else who yeah. is involved. And the, the yeah. Lebanese president's current plan for... I mean, he's not going to get anywhere with it, but he's, he's all, current he, plan he, for peace. They don't have a... No, Prime president. Minister. Oh, Prime right, Minister, sorry. Yeah. Not they don't have a president. Yeah. Um, and it's the guy who only runs about oh, half right. the country anyway. Yeah. Um, and he's saying that, yeah, he's got a three-step plan for peace, but the ceasefire is only the first step, and it's all contingent on if the ceasefire yeah. holds, which even he admits isn't yeah. likely. Mm. So, you know, again, this this goes back to this problem that it is just fundamentally intractable. Mm. Um Anyway, I think we, let's just try and co- go back to Europe a little bit because I think we sort of drift off into a wider yeah. Israel conversation. So I think the whole von der Leyen saga points to this larger problem for the EU, which is that without a sort of like a centralised agent, like the EU really struggles to come up with coherent responses to crises. Mm. And there was this sort of sense that you, you, Europe had found its geopolitical agency with Ukraine. But with Israel... That whole, well, with the sort of the benefit of hindsight and looking at Israel, the EU's apparent geopolitical agency does seem like a sort of historical contingency. It seems like a sort of reflection of the happy coincidence that we were all aligned on Ukraine. And the second that Europe finds its divisions mm-hmm. again, all of a sudden that coherence and that agency collapses. Yeah. So, yeah, do you think basically this ties into this whole reform agenda mm-hmm. with the EU, but do you think it's going to go anywhere? Um, I, I don't know. Is, I don't is know. the obvious answer. But like, <laughs> Obviously, the, the EU does have a foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell. So he's he's a member, of, he's a part of the European Commission, so under Ursula von der Leyen. Then you've got Charles Michel, president of the European Council. You've got these weird things where, like, Ursula von der Leyen will go on a trip somewhere, maybe go and visit Joe Biden. Then two days later, Charles Michel will go there, and you yeah. kind of imagine Biden confused as to who's actually in charge. They, and they don't both get, kind of insist that they are. Yeah, and they don't get on those no. two. But in the past, when you've had a... I think it's, so it's a, it's a European Commission president yeah. and... who What's Michel? He's council uh, president? Council, yeah. Yeah, and in the past, when they did get on, I can't remember what who the former presidents were, mm. but they used to have to those weird photo ops where they'd both <laughs> shake a hand. Yeah. Do you remember those? <laughs> they go to meet like a, a, a yeah. Japanese leader and they'd each one be smiling yeah. and shaking a different hand. But yeah, mm. go on. Um, yeah, well, I think my point was basically that I, I I don't know where it goes from there because there's this kind of a power struggle is probably too grand a term, but like if you do want to consolidate foreign policy power or wider kind of power around one part of the European Union, the council's going to want it, the commission's yeah. going to want it, the parliament's going to want it. Um, it's it's very tricky. Yeah, well, and you can't. yeah. Well, I was going to say also you can obviously you've got the the leaders of each European member state they do vote on things and on policies and stuff but when you have like the immediate aftermath of a crisis like with israel and gaza you've got ursula von der Leyen going over there they're not voting on what she says when she's there that's Mm. that person kind of in the moment saying what they think which in theory should be speaking for the for the european union but is that's effectively an impossible task yeah of course yeah it's it's it is a it's a sort of impossible Mm. problem for the for the eu and i think some of it comes down to the fact that the eu was probably never really designed with foreign policy in mind 
and both as the EU sort of becomes a geopolitical agent, but also just as foreign policy becomes more important in like well, just politics generally, the EU really does it needs to sort of wow, that's such a, such a stupidly useless term, but I was gonna say it needs to sort itself out, yeah. but it needs to come up <laughs> with a, a yeah, <laughs> sort yourselves out, sounding very Nigel Farage yeah. there, but it needs to come up with a more coherent way of doing foreign yeah. policy. I don't know, I don't know what that is. Okay, so here we are with the, the global leader leaderboard. Um, and again, let's start with Rory. Should okay. we go? We normally go down first, don't we? Yeah, and then we, we do. Start with a bad week. Okay, so who, who's going down? So I'm moving Joe Biden down from the very top rung. Um, and this kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier. Going to bring it back to Israel and Gaza. There was some new polling done by the Arab American Institute about uh, the, the view of Arab Americans uh, or their opinion on how Joe Biden has responded to what's happening in, in Gaza. And... Um, Effectively, I'm just going to read the line they wrote. Uh, Support for President Biden in the upcoming election has plummeted among Arab American voters, dropping from 59% to 17%. So that was 59% of that demographic voted for him in 2020, and now just 17% of that demographic is saying they would vote for him next time. Um, There's millions of Arab Americans uh, in in the US, um, lots of them in in Michigan, Pennsylvania, states that are pretty key to him winning re-election. He... Obviously, hasn't been calling for a ceasefire. He's been pretty steadfast in his support for Ukraine. Um, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Ukraine, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> uh, support for Israel, um, which has uh, upset quite a lot of Arab Americans, um, which, yeah, could be pretty bad for his re-election uh, yeah. hopes. And also Democrats more widely. There was another, in that same polling, they looked at party affiliation or party identification among Arab Americans um, it's always been, well, the last 26 years they've been doing polling, Ar- Arab Americans have, or a majority of Arab, <laughs> I really struggle to say it, it's a lot Arab of Americans have identified as Democrats. Um, whereas this was the first time that they polled them where Democrats weren't in the majority. It but went to independence rather than independence. Yeah, because yeah. I was going to say, sure, if you sort of disagree with Biden's stance, you can't really yeah, move can't to move the Republicans to, or Trump. Moving Trump would be wild considering what He's, he thinks about Israel. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, I think uh, I think the next year or so, well, however long the Israel situation plays out, will be pretty pretty yeah. difficult for Biden. You see uh, something similar, by the way, in the UK. Yeah, in that there's this and very similar political dynamics because there's this sort of antipathy or like upset with Starmer amongst parts of the sort of Labour voting base. Mm. They can't really move to the Tories because they've yeah. taken even more pro-Israel stance. So sort of like, what happens? How does that? Yeah. If they don't vote, that is bad news. But it's not as bad news as no. if they move to. To yeah. the Republicans, but no, have true. to wait and see. Okay, Ben, who are you moving down? I'm moving Hamza Youssef down. Oh, really? Oh. Um, yeah, because he's uh, had a couple of defections this week to the Alba uh, Party. How, how's he actually? I didn't notice yeah, that. Um, that Ash should Regan, be under a, that's a good mm. story. Uh, defected to the Alba Party, and it's just it's, it builds into this wider story of the SNP demise mm. um, and the fact that they're now, you know, a previous leadership candidate has moved to, to you know, the Alba Party, which was um, started by uh, Alex Salmond. Salmond yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's not, not, a, great, not a great week. Um, no, I, I think he's been playing an interesting role politically. I mean, again, I saw some polling that basically backs mm. up what you're saying, that he's really not popular. But for those people who don't know, this is the, the current first minister, is that yeah. what you call yeah, him? First minister, yeah, first minister, yeah. first, basically the prime minister of Scotland. And his in-laws are currently stuck yeah. in Gaza. Um, and it's... it's sort of been an interesting like he's playing an interesting political role here and it's also very interesting that 
it shows quite how powerless we are yeah. that he can't get his in-laws out of Gaza. Yeah. Um, and yeah, but nonetheless, you're, you're right that things don't look good for the SNP. So sympathetic as we might be, mm. unfortunately, he's down the ladder. Yeah. You'll probably get some people in the comments telling you you pronounce Alba wrong. I don't Alba? Know, I don't know how you actually say it, but I know that is something that people pick up on. <laughs> I don't know what it is, though. No, I don't know. Either. Yeah. Um, my person going down, and it, it really could have been either Vivek Ramaswamy or DeSantis, mm. but it's going to be Vivek Ramaswamy, and that is because the polling currently suggests that the sort of non-Trump candidate is, or the person who's second to Trump, is now Nikki Haley um, in the Republican primary. Whoa. Uh, a bit more of an establishment Republican. She has nonetheless said some pretty hawkish stuff, especially on foreign policy that wouldn't, wouldn't be out of the Trump playbook. Um, but, yeah, I think it's, it's bad news for them. And I think it's also, in, in a sense, maybe good news for the Republican Party. I think that Nikki Haley is almost definitely a stronger candidate than either of these two. Um, at a presidential election, but it's sort of redundant because mm. Trump will almost definitely be the guy anyway. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, Rory, who is going up? Mine, uh, is my, my person who's had a good week is possibly controversial. Uh, not possibly, it is controversial. Marine Le Pen, uh, <laughs> the leader of the National Rally in France. Um, so my logic here is... I've got kind of got two things. One, there's just been some recent polling where, again, she maintains a lead in the first round uh, of the 2027 presidential election, around 30, 31% in different polls um, ahead of the... Uh, so Macron obviously can't run again, so a lot of polling companies, they just put his name in, assuming there'll be a Macronist candidate, or they'll put in someone like Edouard Philippe, who's kind of a possible Macron um, heir. Uh, but anyway, so Macron or a Macronist candidate, around 25, 26%. Um, in second place. So Le Pen is just maintaining the steady lead and potentially if that goes on, you know, she'll get another shot at going to the second round and then we'll have this big thing about can she win. Um, the other thing is that I, I, I want to be careful how I, how I phrase it because I don't want to make the whole situation in Israel and Gaza about like electoral yeah, politics and stuff, but the, it has provided an opportunity for her to kind of realign her party um, in case people don't know, her party, National Rally, formerly National Front, uh, founded and led by her father for decades, kind of synonymous with anti-Semitism yeah. in, in France under him, um, Jean-Marie Le Pen. Um, he was convicted for like Holocaust denialism, effectively, and uh, lots of things like that. Um, she came out with a very strong pro-Israel statement after the October 7th attack, effectively saying that Israel must be allowed to eradicate Hamas. Um, there are also uh, some... Things going on on the left, the French left, kind of in disarray over the situation in Gaza. Um, you have this kind of pan-left-wing alliance that formed at the legislative elections last year of everything from the communists to the kind of um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon's party and the more mainstream socialists. That is effectively dead now um, because of divisions over how to respond to this, yeah. um, which means they probably won't have a unified candidate in 2027, which splits the vote of the left and means they probably won't go into the second round. Um, which is all kind of good news for uh, for Le Pen, I suppose. Um, I think we probably could have touched on it earlier, but France, the, the impact of what's happening in Israel and Gaza on France is really interesting because France is the has the largest Muslim population in Europe and is the world's third largest Jewish population. And I the think. largest in Europe. Yeah, that's the largest Jewish population. Yeah. As well, yeah. So, so the way, so, so it's a real kind of 
tinderbox at the moment mm. and you've got um <coughs> macron's government kind of trying to stay on top of it and be usually macron's government has always like shifted to the right when it comes to like immigration and yeah. that type of thing trying to kind of stop votes bleeding away to the to the far right um, and i think that will be the dynamic kind of going forward to 2027 mm. as well all that well we could have done a whole episode on what you yeah, just talked about there's probably. so many interesting things mm. in there um yeah i was gonna say you the, the last point you made about the macron thing it does I mean, again, I don't want to reduce Gaza down to like sort of domestic mm. politics in Europe, but it does sort of, sort of explain why Macron has been more focused on peace than, let's say, like the UK or Germany yeah. or US, for example, because there are just more domestic risks to, yeah. to like a continuation of the conflict. The other thing is I'm looking at Le Pen and Sarah Wagenknecht, mm. and it, it's a sort of another data point for the rise of, I mean, she's not that left-wing economically, but she's definitely moved there. Yeah. She moved there during mm. the presidential election, which is still talking about the cost of living in France. Um, socially right-wing, but economically left-wing parties in Europe. Um, and I, again, you know, those terms, again, are they that analytically yeah. useful? But you know what I mean? Like, that, that, that does seem to be a thing, and it does seem to be quite electorally successful. And the last thing I said that I thought was really interesting was that you mentioned that she's been able to, like, sort of distance herself from the yeah. anti-Semitic past. I thought another interesting similar, like, case in point there was Hungary, which mm. was one of the few European countries to actively vote against the humanitarian truce that was suggested at the UN yeah. General Assembly um, and has been really staunch support of Israel. And it's this, you know, Hungary, at least according to its critics, is a deeply anti-Semitic government. Yeah. Um, and it's focused a lot on George Soros and it's mm. sort of, has done, at least some Hungarian politicians have, like, reverted to anti-Semitic tropes mm. to discredit Soros. Um, but, there's this sort of like authoritarian is too strong, but like they're socially illiberal democracies mm. um, and they, they find an affinity there. And that sort of apparently overrides yeah. the, the questionable history. Mm. Um, ben, who's going Yeah, I, um, I, th I think this is going to be a controversial one. Um, I'm putting Rishi Sunak up one. Now, no, two, oh. for two reasons. Um, the first one is the COVID inquiry, I think, has focused very much on his predecessor, or second predecessor, Johnson. Um, and I think that, that has uh, taken quite a lot of attention, media attention away from him. I also think that he's obviously doing his AI summit this week, and he's managed to move the conversation onto a topic he's more comfortable talking about. Uh, it's obviously AI, AI safety, that kind of thing. So it sort of, um, you know... It, all of these revelations about Johnson and the way the pandemic was handled, I think, is undermining this uh, view amongst some Conservative MPs that Johnson should come back, or that, you know, this Boris Johnson contingent. It sort of undermines that faction of the Conservative Party, and I think that strengthens Sunak's position. I know that there was, I think, there was war, he's popped up in the COVID inquiry, but it's not not been nearly as bad. I think he was criticised for. Uh, at one point sort of opposing, I think, maybe the second lockdown um, because of the impact that it might have on the economy. But, you know, if you compare that to the various criticisms of Johnson and his allies, uh, I think that, that that has sort of strengthened his position. And I also think, as I say, his AI summit has sort of moved the conversation away from, you know, bad conservative polling, mm. by-election defeats, things like that, onto a topic he's more comfortable discussing. And, yeah, he hasn't managed to get, you know, major world leaders like Joe Biden, Olaf Scholz, Macron, etc. But he still had some notable figures, you know, Elon Musk going there. Mm. Um, it probably won't help him too much. He's not a particularly popular figure in the UK. Um, but, you know, he's still got some other, um, you know, uh, foreign ministers, etc. to go along. And I think that the media attention on that, on the whole, 
uh, will help him. No, I think that's true. Tomorrow's it is one of the things that the UK does do well. You know, we are turning into sort of the forerunners when it comes to international AI safety, which is which is to his credit. Um, so the person who's going up for me, and it's partly because I just sort of want to fill this bit of the board up, <laughs> is Nicole Pashinyan. Whoa. Yeah. I didn't think he'd get moved again. I, I, on did I but I yeah. saw him and I thought, what are you doing this day? I'll give you a little Google. Um, and it turns out he's doing okay. So I think the reason Pashinyan is doing okay is because, uh, as most people will hopefully know, uh, he is the Prime Minister of Armenia, and they suffered... Uh, basically a military loss against Azerbaijan a couple of weeks back when Azerbaijan took back its internationally recognised, to be fair, uh, territory of, well, the Azerbaijanis call it Nagorno-Karabakh and the Armenians call it Artsakh. Um, and it forced the, essentially, like the, the evacuation or the deportation, really, of about 100,000 Armenians living mm. in the territory. Um, but Pashinyan has had a good-ish last couple of weeks or so both because it looks like he is nearing a peace agreement with Azerbaijan. Um, and you, you might think, like, why they need a peace agreement? Surely Azerbaijan's won. That's true. But there is also this contested issue, what's called the Zangazur Corridor, which is this sort of like the southernmost part of Armenia, which connects um, the main bit of Azerbaijan to its Nakhchivan exclave, enclave, exclave, exclave. exclave. Yeah. Um, and the reason that that looks like it's going to hold that the Azerbaijanis were under very little incentive to agree to a peace agreement given their like sort of overwhelming military superiority is because Pashinyan has negotiated a very tenuous but apparently sufficient defense agreement with the French who have agreed to start selling him arms um, and Macron has been lobbying other European leaders to basically bring Armenia into the European security mm. network as it were um so that's pretty good. And he's also somehow survived. So yeah, he's not popular. A coup and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, because he gave up a big contested yeah. bit of territory. But he has apparently survived mm. and looks like he'll, he'll be hanging on. I mean, this is really hostage to fortune because, mm. you know, if the Azerbaijanis invade the Zangazur corridor or if he gets ousted sometimes soon, I'll like a pillock. But it's nice to have this bit. Nice. Yeah, we're, we're <laughs> gradually spreading the board out slightly. Yeah. Okay. So I think that is that is everything. Um, thank you very much for watching. Uh, thank you very much to Roy Taylor thank and you. Ben Blissett for all your insights. Uh, and we'll see you guys again next week. Cool. <laughs> see you next week. <laughs>